So in the days before Humphrey gives the speech, a senator tells Humphrey in so many words, if you give the speech, your career is over. And Humphrey knows all of this. He knows that this could be a suicide mission for him politically. And he's committed to giving the speech, but he also feels a very human amount of trepidation. And at that moment, the political boss of the Bronx, Ed Flynn, who'd been a close ally of FDR's, comes over to Humphrey, literally throws his arm around him and says, you're doing the right thing, kid. We should have done this long ago. And I think that's the last bit of stiffening of his backbone that helped Humphrey. That was Samuel Friedman talking about Hubert Humphrey, the subject of his latest book, Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. I'm Mark Lawrence. And I'm Mark Updegrove, and this is With the Bark Off. Samuel Friedman is a professor at Columbia University and the award-winning author of 10 books. In Into the Bright Sunshine, he looks at the life of Hubert Humphrey, who had become senator from Minnesota, vice president to Lyndon Johnson, and the Democratic presidential nominee in 1968, who lost his bid for the presidency to Richard Nixon by less than one percentage point. But it's Humphrey's early years that Samuel Friedman covers in his book, chronicling Humphrey's humble beginnings in small-town South Dakota in his move to Minneapolis, Minnesota, where Humphrey launched an activist political career that helped to change the trajectory of civil rights in America. Mark, I think what, what Sam Friedman's book really shows us in looking at the early life of Hubert Humphrey is that he really did have a huge impact on the trajectory of civil rights, as you say. And the, 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 the title of the book, Into the Bright Sunshine, nods at the speech, the very seminal speech that Hubert Humphrey gave at the 1948 Democratic National Convention in Philadelphia. And I think, why don't we play a, a portion of that speech including that phrase that illustrates the passion that Humphrey had around civil rights. To those who say that we are rushing this issue of civil rights, I say to them, we are 172 years late. To those who say... To those who say that this civil rights program is an infringement on states' rights, I say this. The time has arrived in America for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadows of states' rights and to walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. So there it is, this this phenomenal speech that Hubert Humphrey gives. By the way, only a 10-minute speech, really short, but a, a really consequential speech, as Sam Friedman's book uh, argues, I think, very successfully. You know, I think we have a sense of the civil rights movement as something that played out in the 1950s and 1960s. But one of the things that this book does, especially by calling attention to the speech, is to show that the civil rights movement and these really crucial moments in that story sometimes played out in the 1940s as well. It's an earlier history than we're used to thinking about. You're absolutely right, Mark. And, and this is one of the big seeds that is planted in the fertile ground that would become the civil rights movement of the, the, the late 1950s and the, the 1960s, this seminal movement that, that moves America forward in so many ways. And uh, Hubert Humphrey, what I realized from Sam's book is the huge influence that, uh, that, that Humphrey has in moving the Democratic Party toward civil rights, as you heard from that, uh, that electric uh, passage from, from Humphrey's speech that we just heard a moment ago. But boy, when you look at Humphrey's early life, Mark, you can see why Humphrey himself would uh, develop these passions around civil rights. I I realized, as I never had before in in, uh, uh, reading about Humphrey's life, how much of of his life's experiences pointed him toward uh, being a reformer in the area of civil rights. 
One of the points, of course, that Sam Friedman makes, and I think we would definitely agree, Mark, is that we all know Hubert Humphrey best for what he did in the 1960s and early 1970s. But there's this really fascinating earlier story that uh, is, is really central to the history of civil rights and to where the Democratic Party would go over the years thereafter. Sam Friedman, thank you so much for being with us on With the Barkov. My pleasure to be here. Sam, Hubert Humphrey was no doubt a giant of his era in the 1950s, 60s, early 70s. But I think it's fair to say he's become somewhat less known in, in recent years. How did you nevertheless come to do a biography of the, the young Hubert Humphrey? Well, I felt that um, if, if people know Humphrey today, as you said, they know him from his years as LBJ's vice president on. And although those years start with, I think, the high point of both uh, Lyndon Johnson's and Hubert Humphrey's public lives with the enactment of the Voting Rights Act and the Civil Rights Act and the Fair Housing Act, Vietnam does immense damage to both of their reputations. And then Humphrey's reputation is further tarnished by getting the Democratic nomination in 1968 amid the turmoil at the convention with the police force rioting against anti-war protesters and journalists and then losing narrowly to Richard Nixon. And I think even more than losing to Nixon, running as what looked like the old battered establishment candidate against George McGovern for the nomination in 72 and losing it. So he was really an object of ridicule. Um, by the end. And that, unfortunately, is the image that has stuck and very relevant to talking to you from the LBJ Library and Foundation. I kept on wondering, how is it that, you know, knowledgeable American readers and followers of politics and history can hold two truths about Lyndon Johnson in a dynamic relationship? The catastrophe of escalation in Vietnam and the magisterial courage of the civil rights and great society laws. And we can take this 360 degree look at, at Johnson as he totally deserves. And with Humphrey, only one part of, of his public life, and it was the most um, problematic part, seems to have remained in our collective memory. And in trying to wrestle with that question, it brought me back to this landmark civil rights speech he gives at the 1948 Democratic Convention, which is really the culmination of an early part of his life, which even the couple of books that have been written about Hubert Humphrey and, and the extraordinary work that Robert Caro has done about Humphrey in some of his multi-part biography of Johnson doesn't really touch on that much. There's a bit of it in one of Caro's books, but mostly it's been kind of terra incognita for um, historians and biographers. And what went with that was a feeling that came to me pretty early in my research that there was what I call the proto-civil rights movement of the 1940s, metaphorically the lowercase civil rights movement that precedes what we all think of as the beginning of the proper noun, capital letter, civil rights movement of the 50s with Brown versus Board of Ed and Rosa Parks and Dr. King and the Montgomery bus boycott. But the 40s, partly because of the effect of World War II, and we can talk about this later, was such a period of progress on civil rights that, again, comparatively speaking, barely got touched compared to the volume of books on the war itself and compared to the volume of books on the civil rights movement from the 50s forward. So I felt like I had a biographical hole to fill and also a historiographic hole to fill. So let's talk about Humphrey's early life. In its earliest days, we associate uh, Hubert Humphrey with uh, uh, the place where he made his political career, Minnesota, but he was born and raised in the grasslands of South Dakota at a time of great economic turmoil for the region. How would you describe Humphrey's early life and the economic factors that came to define it? You know, we think of the Great Depression starting with the stock market crash of 1929 and then the cascade of bank failures and the dust storms and so forth. But in the Dakotas, where Humphrey was growing up, there had been uh, the bottom dropped out of crop prices after World War I ended, and this period of great wartime prosperity for the farm economy out there turned into a period of mass poverty, bank failures, foreclosures, and that was what characterized Humphrey's childhood. Um, in 1922, and he's uh, 
just 11 years old, his family loses their home. They lived in the nicest house in their 500-person hometown of Dolan, South Dakota. And all of a sudden, they're out of it, and they're renting a crummy little house on the poor side of the tracks. And that experience that Humphrey had early on of seeing people plunged into poverty and seeing the customers of his father's drugstore, who were farmers who now couldn't afford to pay, and Humphrey's father floated them thousands of dollars of credit out of the goodness of his heart. That gave Humphrey an important political lesson, which, as he later put it, was to realize that economic failure wasn't the result of personal failure. It wasn't a defect in people's character, that there were these metaphorses that affected people's lives that, while they might be worsened by personal choices, they're beyond individual decision-making to surmount, and you needed activist government. So he becomes a new dealer before there's even a new deal. He's in childhood seeing that there needs to be more than private charity, and there needs to be more than finger-wagging about the way you live your life. You need government to step in. And that's one of the most essential parts of his childhood um, experience, politically speaking. It's fascinating, Sam, how similar that experience is to LBJ's I was thinking uh, exactly and, that. Uh, yeah. And the lessons he learned about the, the, the vulnerability of ordinary people through no fault of, of their own. Um, let me um, take you a little bit further into Hubert Humphrey's young life and ask you about his experiences as a student at, at uh, LSU, Louisiana State University in Baton Rouge. H how did this chapter of, of his life change Hubert Humphrey's outlook on America and in some respects the world? That's a great question. And I want to draw another parallel to LBJ. As people, you know, who are familiar with his biography know, his experience teaching in a mostly Mexican American public school in South Texas is really the beginning of his moral awakening on issues of race and on that aspect of, of inequality. I mean, obviously, his knowledge of rural electrification and the difficulty of childhood in the Hill Country made him, again, a new dealer before there was such a thing as the New Deal. But that Mexican-American school was his awakening to race. And for Hubert Humphrey, the year he goes to grad school at LSU is the comparable period of his life. He goes there when he's already 27 years old. His whole undergrad career at the University of Minnesota had been interrupted for five years when his family, having already lost their home, lost their drugstore, had to move to a different town in South Dakota to try to start over again. And Humphrey and his brother both gave up college to come home and try to help out. It took Humphrey five years to get back to finish up college. And when he does it, he's married, he has a baby on the way, and he's just trying to catch up. And then he gets admitted to grad school at Louisiana State. And purely because he and his wife Muriel need the $400 stipend he'll get for being a teaching assistant, they go to Baton Rouge. And what it does to change Humphrey's whole political life in the years to come, is it introduces him to a Jim Crow society because he's never lived in a place with any substantial black population until that point. He's never lived in the South at all to that point. He also, somewhat surprisingly, encounters Jewish students and friends for the first time in his life there. He has a friend on the debating team named Alvin Rubin, who, by the way, later LBJ and Humphrey will point to a federal judgeship in Louisiana and... Um, Rubin will go on to issue some really important rulings on desegregation. But Alvin Rubin, as Humphrey's buddy on the debate team, is telling him stories of his five uncles who were trapped in Europe under Nazi control, all of whom will be exterminated. And that's the beginning of Humphrey's awareness of what we'll come to call the Holocaust later. And finally, when Humphrey's at LSU, he studies with this amazing sociologist named Rudolf Eberly. And Eberly is a one-eighth Jewish anti-Nazi professor who not only for his Jewish ancestry, even though he had long ago converted to Christianity, but that didn't matter to Hitler, not only for that Jewish ancestry, but because he'd begun to study as a scholar how Germany was able to transform from a democracy to a dictatorship in just a matter of a few years. He's been stripped of his job, driven into exile, is penniless in the U.S., and luckily finds a job at LSU and moves down there. And when he teaches this seminar that Humphrey takes along with a dozen other students. Eberly is both talking about his research into the rise of the Nazis in Germany. He's talking about his family's personal experience, and he's drawing parallels between both of those things and the experience of blacks in the Jim Crow South. And all this is so essential to the person Humphrey becomes. And also Humphrey takes deeply to heart something that Eberly says one day in class, 
so much so that Humphrey remembered it 40 or 50 years later when he's writing to Eberly on the occasion of Eberly's 80th birthday. He remembers Eberly saying to these dozen students, if we were in Nazi Germany, maybe two of you would stand up to Hitler. Mm. And I think Humphrey took that admonition to heart. And so when he leaves LSU after the 1939-40 academic year to go back to Minneapolis to start his career in public life, instead of doing what you might think he would do, which is to say, whew, I'm glad I'm out of you know, the benighted South and back in the, you know, liberal, racially tolerant North again. No, he now has the vision that allows him to see the massive amount of racism and anti-Semitism that had been in Minneapolis all along and that he had been oblivious to up until this point. So, so as you suggest, Sam, the education of Hubert Humphrey um, begins perhaps as it relates to bigotry and anti-Semitism in Louisiana, but it follows him to to Minneapolis. We don't necessarily associate those things with uh, with the Midwest. And yet when Hubert Humphrey returns to Minneapolis, he uh, uh, as he gets settled out of graduate school, he sees it as a hotbed of anti-Semitism and racial intolerance. What did post-war Minneapolis look like for its Jewish and black citizens? Well, it began, you know, well before the war years, basically because of internal migration from the Mid-South, states like Kentucky and Tennessee particularly, and migration of, of Jewish immigrants from Eastern Europe, the Jewish and black populations in Minneapolis begin to coalesce in the early 20th century, late 19th century. And numerically, they're pretty small communities. They collectively form maybe 3% of the population of the city. And so they're too small to really wield political influence. And they're small enough to be the subject of incredible oppression. And Minneapolis is a city with a Protestant, Northern European, German, Scandinavian, British Isles population that's incredibly um, dominant over any minority groups there, and particularly the blacks and the Jews. So even though the people in Minneapolis will go to pains, and this is right up to the point when Humphrey gets there in the 40s, to say, we're not like the South, you know, we don't lynch blacks here, we let them vote, you know, but why can't they just be content to live in their little neighborhood on the north side and work the jobs we let them have, which were basically service jobs for them, you know, for the men in hotels and uh, service jobs working as, you know, housekeepers or cooks or babysitters for the women. And um, that was the attitude about black people in, in Minneapolis. And by the way, it wasn't just like a product of people who were politically conservative. Organized labor in Minneapolis was as bigoted as big business was. You couldn't, as a black person, get into most of the labor unions there. And then for the Jews... Um, there was a similarly straightened, constrained way of, of life there, so much so that you couldn't belong to AAA in Minneapolis if you were Jewish. You couldn't belong to uh, the country clubs. You couldn't get doctor's privileges at the hospitals. If you, could, you, you couldn't were work Jewish, at a, at a department store, it shocked you, me to find right, out, Sam, right? Exactly. Yeah. No, right. In other cities, Jews owned department yeah. stores or worked at them. It was a niche business. In Minneapolis, they couldn't get jobs at them. And over at the University of Minnesota, the president of the university actually stealthily kept a census of Jewish and black students and would report on it to a you know right-wing activist guy named Ray Chase. And I have to credit the historian Ravel and Prell for digging up that story. So um, these, this was a city that even though it perceived itself as being relatively tolerant, and we know that phrase Minnesota nice to refer to the local temperament, actually had this really tawdry reputation. And it was a reputation that even extended to being a, a comfortable place for pro-Nazi sentiment. During the 1930s, this pro-Nazi group called the Silver Shirts regularly met in Minneapolis. Charles Lindbergh, the isolationist and supporter of many aspects of Hitler's Germany, was a son of Minneapolis. And um, Gerald L. K. Smith, who was the founder of the America First political party and someone else with you know very pro-fascist sympathies, regularly came to Minneapolis to speak as a guest of one of Minnesota's senators and the senator's widow after that senator died. So this was a city with a really entrenched bigotry problem that it really, really didn't want to acknowledge. 
Sam, given how you've just described Minneapolis, it's not at all obvious that someone with Hubert Humphrey's politics could possibly get any traction. So how do you explain his ability actually to launch a political career under those conditions? Well, that's such a superb question, Mark. I mean, when he first runs for mayor in 1943, he runs a more conventional campaign. He's running on good government and cleaning up uh, the crime downtown, some of which is the product indeed of Jewish gangsters. Um, and he's emphasizing his Scandinavian background in his ads, which makes a lot of sense. But he's also sort of seen as a young, exciting, fresh voice, and he had gotten well-known by giving speeches for war mobilization. But the real pivotal moment is when he runs in 1945, the second time, also against the incumbent uh, Marvin Klein, he runs explicitly on issues of taking on racism and anti-Semitism. By this time, he's become a very public foe of the aforementioned Gerald L.K. Smith. And even during the campaign in the spring of 1945, at the exact time when newsreels of the death camps are being shown in American theaters, when the first major languages by American or articles by American journalists about the Holocaust are being published in mainstream publications, against that backdrop, Jewish teenagers and children in Minneapolis are being repeatedly attacked by Protestant gangs there. They're being beaten, they're being robbed, they're being knifed, they're being having their cars driven off the road, they're being thrown through plate glass windows. And the mayor and the police chief are saying, typically, this is just teenage hooliganism, this doesn't mean anything. And there's a mass meeting of the Jewish community there at which a rabbi says, is this why our sons are dying? Is this what we've been fighting for, to have our children attacked on the streets of America? And Humphrey comes into that situation and he says, not only is this not teenage hooliganism, this was the predictable outcome of decades of Jew hatred in the city, and it was bound to turn violent, and now it has. And he takes it on directly in the campaign. And he also has huge support from the black community. And in fact, within a couple of months of becoming mayor, he personally intercedes in a notorious case of police brutality. He overrules his favorite police officer on the whole force in a false arrest case. But how could he win is a great question. I think partly there is this moment with the return of the war veterans and this understanding of we've defeated fascism. What do we need to do on the home front? And also, frankly, just a large number of new voters, young war veterans and their wives coming back to attend college at the University of Minnesota. And this moment of awareness, I think, gave voters ears for the message that Humphrey had at that time. I think in any other year than 1945, it might not have been successful, but it was successful that year. And then he began to act on it, you know, to come through on his promises as soon as he became mayor. There is not a great deal of power that comes with the job of mayor in Minneapolis, though it does come with a, a platform. What does Hubert Humphrey hope to achieve in becoming mayor of Minneapolis? You're so right, Mark. Minneapolis is a so-called weak mayor system. The city council controls the budget. The city council controls almost every major appointment except that of the police chief. And so Humphrey on paper had very little direct power, although he did bring in a really exceptionally qualified police chief named Ed Ryan. But what he had to figure out to get his civil rights agenda enacted was how do I circumvent the city council? And in this really canny way, he raised some private money to create what he called citizens' committees, citizens' committees on law enforcement to push for a police reform program, <clears throat> citizens' committees on human rights to push for a fair employment law, to push for an end to restrictive covenants in housing. And he also was a great coalition builder. So when he would put together the volunteers on these committees, he'd have Republicans and Democrats. He'd have people from labor and management. He'd have Christians and Jews and black Christians. He'd have blacks, Jews, Nisai Japanese, um, a whole men and women, people who would disagree on a lot of other issues, but would share his agenda, whether it was on police reform or on civil rights and human rights. And he's able then to use those committees to help shape public opinion and to use that to influence the council to go along with his program. The other thing he did that was incredibly bold is he brought in 
a black sociologist from Fisk, the famous HBCU in Nashville that would later go on to educate John Lewis and Diane Nash of civil rights fame. And he brought in Charles Johnson, the sociologist, to lead a survey using volunteers from the Minneapolis community to basically compile what we would now call a database to prove the extent of bigotry and also to assemble a lot of the anecdotal evidence. And what that meant is that Minneapolis, whose establishment had always denied that there was a problem, who had always said that it's only like the great unwashed who would go to the Silver Shirts meetings, even though we knew that like the president of the Board of Ed went and the head of the Industrial Association went and doctors and dentists went. But there was this you know, pattern of denial. And the results of the self-survey demolished that complacent, self-congratulatory self-image. And with that evidence, Humphrey also used that as leverage to push his civil rights program through the city council. And, you know, by today's standards, and look, by the standards of what LBJ and Humphrey and on the outside, Martin Luther King and the Freedom Movement were able to accomplish in the 1960s, we might look back on getting a fair employment law as being not such a big deal. But I want to tell you, it was so risky that Humphrey was nearly assassinated for it, mm. that he almost paid with his life for pursuing the civil rights agenda. Sam, I wanted to ask you exactly about that attempt on Humphrey's life and more broadly about the response to that, that he experienced in Minneapolis to these initiatives. Yeah. Well, the response he had cut, you know, very much both ways. He had applause and great support in certain sectors and obviously won twice in 1945 and 1947 in mayoral elections. But there was an enormous amount of pushback um, and by the way, which anticipated the pushback he got in 1948 with the civil rights speech at the convention. And in terms of the assassination, what happens is one night in February 1947, just about the time the self-survey is gathering steam, just about the time Humphrey is moving forward on legislation to create a fair employment commission and to actually have laws with teeth in them, he's dropped off by his police escort one night after a bunch of meetings and speeches. He's walking to the front door of his house. Weirdly, the nearest streetlight is out. And so in the dark, he's fumbling with his keys at the front door. And while he's hunched over, three bullets whiz by him. And, you know, his wife lets him in. He's not hit. But then they go out to sort of explore and figure, try to figure out what the heck happened. The next morning, when his son Skip wakes up and comes down for breakfast, there's a police officer sitting in the living room with a sawed-off shotgun across his lap. Humphrey managed, in a way that you could never imagine a politician being able to manage now, to keep the news of the assassination attempt out of the newspapers for about six weeks. But what happened in the meantime was, first of all, when Humphrey and his wife Muriel put together the events of that night, and Muriel remembered their pet dog had barked right before the shots, and they thought maybe that's why the shooter missed, because the barking threw off his concentration. Well, within a week or two, the dog is missing and is never found. And at the same time, there's also a huge amount of leafleting of anti-Semitic and pro-Nazi material at liberal churches in town, at the university campus. There are a bunch of calls placed to Humphrey's um, political associates, phone calls and letters to his wife, trying to plant this false idea that Jewish gangsters had tried to assassinate him because of his cleanup of, you know, gambling and, and liquor activity downtown. And all of this was to cover for a guy named Maynard Orlando Nelson, who was a war veteran who had become besotted with the Nazis and was tied in with a white supremacist group based in Georgia called the Columbians and was a big follower of Gerald L.K. Smith, who I've mentioned a couple of times. And he's the one who almost certainly tried to assassinate Humphrey because the police arrest him and find in his apartment guns, knives, propaganda materials, correspondence with that neo-Nazi group, the Columbians. And they arrest him for those things. Interestingly, Humphrey never brings charges, and I couldn't find like a specific letter or memo in which Humphrey ever explained why not. But my best guess is that, first of all, he didn't want to give Nelson the public arena of a trial mm. in which he could spread his propaganda and even play the martyr. And secondly, I think he hoped that Nelson would kind of slink out of town 
And he didn't do it right away, but interestingly, as I found in Nelson's FBI file, he later tied in with George Lincoln Rockwell and the American Nazi Party down in Chicago. So um, Humphrey didn't get that much response about the assassination because he'd made so many attempts to bury the story, to downplay it. And even in his memoir and even in other books about him, it's treated oddly as a kind of an aside. And there are even certain accounts of it that tend to give, I think, totally undeserved credit to this ridiculous theory that Jewish gangsters would have gone after him. I mean, the Jewish gangsters were mad at Humphrey for cleaning up downtown, but their approach had been to try to bribe him. And he turned down their bribe. They would never have tried to assassinate him because these gangsters wanted to be part of the legitimate Jewish community, even as they were criminals. And Humphrey was a hero to the Jewish community. So A, it would have estranged them from their own Jewish community to have any part of trying to kill Humphrey. And B, it would have brought far more police um, surveillance an intervention onto them if they had taken a shot at the mayor. So why that theory ever got any traction, I, I don't know. Sam, at the heart of your very compelling book, as you suggested earlier, is the speech that Humphrey delivers at the 1948 Democratic Convention in Philadelphia on the subject of civil rights. Before we delve into that speech and, and why Humphrey delivered it, uh, let's talk about the, the Democratic Party at that time. Where did the party stand on the issue of civil rights in 1948? I, I know that you have a really knowledgeable set of listeners because of who you are at the LBJ Library and Institution. <laughs> no, I'm serious, but I think that still it takes a contemporary Americans, um, you know, it takes them by surprise to understand that the New Deal coalition that FDR and Franklin Roosevelt assembled had some of the predicted elements. It had organized labor. It had Jews and Catholics from immigrant families. It had college-educated intellectuals. But it also had this whole Southern wing of the Democratic Party, which was the party of segregation and Jim Crow, because the Republicans were the party of Lincoln and the Civil War and the Emancipation Proclamation. So the white supremacists of the South, almost to one, affiliated with the Democratic Party. And FDR made a political evaluation that in order to win election to the White House, he needed the electoral votes of the Deep South. In order to get New Deal legislation through Congress, he needed the support of these often very senior um, elected officials from the South in the Senate and in the House. And in order to do that, he had to appease them. And to some extent, he appeased them by having New Deal programs, including Social Security, <clears throat> written in such a way that they omitted agricultural and domestic workers, which is to say 90% of working black people in the South. And in other ways, he appeased them by letting New Deal programs be locally administered. So if you had a state like Mississippi or Alabama or Georgia that ran on a Jim Crow system, all the New Deal programs were going to be administered in a Jim Crow way. And then finally, when the Democratic Party formed its platform in each of FDR's four runs for the president, any language about civil rights would be deliberately vague and equivocal. And the purpose of that equivocation was so the Southerners could say that the platform allowed what they called states' rights, which was their euphemism for Jim Crow. But what it meant was that if the Constitution didn't explicitly say America must be racially equal, then every state, in the absence of the Constitution saying anything different, got to make up its own mind. And that meant if you were, again, in the Deep South, you could declare, you know, segregation the law of your own state, and the federal government couldn't do a thing about it. And so those were the kind of morally corrupt but politically pragmatic bargains FDR had made. And that's the situation of the Democratic Party heading into the 1948 convention. And of course, by now, FDR has died, Harry Truman has risen from vice president to become president, and is now on the way to being nominated to run for a full term. And Truman's really interesting. In fact, in a lot of ways, he reminds me of LBJ because he comes from a border state. You wouldn't predict that he'd be sympathetic to civil rights. But Truman had been deeply affected by a series of attacks on black war veterans in the South, including a, a returning army sergeant named Isaac Woodard, who has his eyes gouged out by a sheriff in a South Carolina town. And he begins to move forward, Truman does, on civil rights up until he's starting to stare at the election calendar at November 48. And then it's like, well, 
I'm going to revert to the FDR playbook. We're going to placate the South. I'm going to drop my own civil rights agenda because I need the South to win. And again, that's part of the climate politically and ideologically heading into the 48 convention. So, Sam, in 1948, Humphrey is an up and coming uh, figure in the in the Democratic Party, and he's chosen to give a speech, a brief speech at the, the, the National Convention. Um, and it's clear uh, that he wants to talk about civil rights. That's how he's going to use his time. Talk, though, about the the pressures that he felt to modulate his take on this subject and how he decided to uh, make the speech that, in fact, he gave. Yeah. Well, you have to remember at this point that Humphrey, politically speaking, is a kid. Mm. He is 37 years old, but he's only been an elected official for three years He's only had one office in his life, which is mayor of the 17th largest city in the country. And even though he's begun to make a national name because of the progress he's made on civil rights and human rights in Minneapolis, he's still very junior within the Democratic Party and very vulnerable. And because of his great oratorical abilities and his passion for, for civil rights, he's chosen by the insurgents within the Democratic Party to make a speech to the entire 1,500 delegates to try to persuade them to vote over and against Harry Truman's own wishes for, you know, a vague civil rights plank and over and against the threat of the southern wing of the party, the so-called Dixiecrats, to walk out, run their own protest candidate and try to cost Harry Truman the election. So in the days before Humphrey gives a speech, a senator who's one of um, Truman's point people in the convention hall, tells Humphrey in so many words, if you give the speech, your career is over. Another one of Truman's point people calls Humphrey a pipsqueak. Truman is writing in his own diary that Humphrey and the other insurgents are crackpots. And Humphrey knows all of this. He knows that this could be a suicide mission for him politically. And He's committed to giving the speech, but he also, you know, feels a very human amount of trepidation about it, even to the moment he's up on the podium waiting to speak. And at that moment, the political boss of the Bronx, Ed Flynn, who'd been a close ally of FDR's, comes over to Humphrey with a really important message, which is that a lot of the big city bosses are going to have their delegations vote in favor of the civil rights plank. It's not that they've suddenly become more liberal because these were kind of centrist machine politicians, but they felt that their down-ballot candidates for local and city and statewide offices were going to be defeated if the Democrats couldn't do something to engender a big black turnout. And so Flynn goes over to Humphrey, literally throws his arm around him and says, you're doing the right thing, kid. We should have done this long ago. And I think that's the last bit of stiffening of his backbone that helped Humphrey. And there's one other element that just blew me away when I found it in the archival records, which is that the whole week when Humphrey's in Philadelphia for the convention, his wife Muriel is looking for a cottage on a lake, this very Minnesotan thing to do, where they and their kids are going to take a week-long vacation after the convention and before Humphrey starts his campaign for Senate. And she finds out that the cottage the resort they want to go to has an anti-Jewish covenant and needless to say also anti-black covenants. And she's writing back and forth with Humphrey several times a day and saying, this is what I heard. I'm going to go and confront the owners and find out if it's true. She finds out if it's true. And literally on the morning when Humphrey is going to give this speech and has to make up his mind, is he going to go through? He gets the letter from Muriel saying, well, this place has a restrictive covenant and we can't stay there. This is, you know, anathema to our moral values, and it's also politically idiotic and hypocritical to do. And I think that letter plays a role also, because as the second wave feminists would put it in later decades, the personal is the political. Mm. And in this case, the familial for Humphrey is the political. So I think emboldened by Muriel, emboldened by Ed Flynn, he is sufficiently fortified to take the immense risks that he's going to take in giving that speech. Sam, 70 million people are listening as Humphrey makes his 10-minute address, which includes the phrase that is the, the title of your book, Into the Bright Sunshine. Tell us about the speech that Humphrey gave and why it became so seminal. Right. Well, I want to start with a later analogy. We all know 
Martin Luther King's I Have a Dream speech. And we tend to think, wow, King came up with that on the spot. What a bit of, you know, eloquent improvisation. But as I learned from David Marins's book, Once in a Great City, about Detroit in the early 1960s, King was trying out versions of that phrase in earlier speeches. Mm. And actually, when he's up at the podium at the Lincoln Memorial, Mahalia Jackson, the great gospel singer and civil rights activist who'd been at his speech in Detroit, is shouting to him, tell him about the mountaintop, Martin. Or rather, tell him about the dream, Martin. Tell him about the dream. And he should cues him to take that bit of rhetoric he'd used, you know, months earlier in Detroit. And similarly, Hubert Humphrey, in radio addresses, in other speeches during the convention committee processes, had been trying out a couple of phrases and not quite getting them right. And they became the two most memorable phrases of the speech. One is when he says to those who are saying that we're rushing the civil rights issue, I say we are 172 years too late, meaning going back to 1776. And then he says, and for those, you know, who you know, basically don't want us to take on this issue at all. He said it's time for the Democratic Party to get out of the shadow of states' rights and walk forthrightly into the bright sunshine of human rights. And I interpret that phrase in light of Humphrey's childhood experience of the dust storms in South Dakota, that when he's talking about the shadows, I think he's at some level remembering his years running the family drugstore in the early 30s when dust storms would descend and he said how they would depress him for days afterwards, and he thought it was the end of the world. And similarly, when the dust storm would end and miraculously the sun would reappear, I think that's why that idea of walking into the sunshine was so resonant for him. And so those are the two linchpin phrases. But also what he does in the speech is he connects civil rights to the battle against the Soviet Union in the Cold War for the political allegiance of the developing nations of Africa and Asia and South and Central America, that America can't look hypocritical on matters of race, can't give the moral high ground to Marxist-Leninism. And he also has a great sentence in there that was put into the speech, which Humphrey overall wrote 99% of it or 95% himself. But one sentence comes from one of his political associates, Eugenie Anderson, and she comes up with this line of congratulating Harry Truman on the civil rights agenda. And what that sentence does is give the delegates permission to vote against what Truman wants while rationalizing it as we're just endorsing Harry Truman's mm. own program, which literally speaking was true. And so those are the elements that Humphrey packs into 10 minutes. And the other thing that's so incredible when you hear the speech is the booing, that you hear a lot of cheers for sure, but he is being hooted down by the Southern delegations, their boos are even more audible than the cheers. So that's another sense of what the political risk was here. Sam, how should we think about that speech in the longer arc of the civil rights movement? I think it's one of the key moments in our, in our civil rights narrative that has never gotten its due. Um, and I also should say that while Humphrey's playing the inside game with the speech, with the other insurgent Democrats lining up their delegations, putting together their coalition with the big city Democratic bosses. Outside the convention hall, the great black labor leader, A. Philip Randolph, is leading protest marches every day as part of a campaign calling for black young men to refuse to register for the draft or to serve unless Harry Truman will desegregate the military. So you've both inside and outside pressure working towards the same end. But as a result of that plank endorsing civil rights and explicitly saying we're going to desegregate the military, we should end the poll tax, we should outlaw lynching, um, and also extending protections against discrimination along the lines of, re of religion and national origin. So this is also um, a plank that's really important to American Jews, American Catholics, Japanese Americans, Mexican Americans, and so on. Um, it forces Harry Truman to run on civil rights. Two weeks after the convention, he does desegregate the military, and he desegregates the federal workforce. The weekend before the election, he becomes the first presidential candidate on a major party to give a campaign speech in Harlem. And he wins his upset victory over Tom Dewey for one reason, which is a surge of black voters in swing states. His margin in three swing states, it's, I think California, Ohio, and Michigan, is solely because of the, the boom in black turnout. 
and in the black vote for the Democratic ticket that year. So those are some immediate effects. The other is that this is the beginning of a process that LBJ and Humphrey will solidify in the, in the 1960s, which is to make the Democratic Party a party of multiracial inclusive democracy and to have the segregationist wing of the party permanently depart. You know, after 1948, when they do run this Dixiecrat third party with Strom Thurmond running for president, they kind of come back into the Democratic Party a little bit because Adlai Stevenson and John F. Kennedy are both, frankly, timid on mm. civil rights and want to try to mend fences with that wing of the party. But once Johnson becomes president and moves forward on the Civil Rights Act of 64 with Humphrey helping him in the Senate, he knows, and Johnson says as much, that that's the end of the South voting Democratic for the foreseeable future. And so the departure of the Dixiecrats in 48 is really the beginning of movement of the segregationist part of the white electorate in the South into the Republican Party, beginning with voting for Goldwater, then Nixon, then Reagan. Um, then if you skip over several more moderate Republicans like H.W. Bush, W. Bush, and John McCain, then you get to Donald Trump and you see what the Republican Party is now. And so those trajectories come out of 1948, absolutely. In his early political life, Sam, Humphrey was a reformer who was guided by his conscience and moral compass, as you make very clear in the book. But by the end of Humphrey's career, you call him a fallen hero who had seen the degradation of his public image as reflected in the musical satirist's 1965 song, Whatever Became of Hubert. So what did become of Hubert Humphrey? How did he evolve as a politician, and how was he seen in the balance of his political career? It's another great question, and I think it's something any biographer who takes on those parts of Humphrey's life has to wrestle with. And even though it's not a big part of my book, I definitely had to wrestle with it myself. I think one thing to keep in mind is Humphrey is very loyal. He's loyal to his party. He's loyal to a president. And if he is Lyndon Johnson's vice president, he's going to try to be in sync with Johnson. I think there was a misapprehension that Humphrey was always against the war and that it was only to try to appease and suck up to Lyndon Johnson, that he supported it. I disagree with that. You know, Hubert Humphrey was a great liberal, but he was also a cold warrior. And without going into an immense amount of numbing detail for your listeners, the internal politics of Minnesota when he was coming of age involved a serious attempt by members of the Communist Party and by fellow travelers of theirs to take over what was going to be the DFL, the Democrat Farmer Labor Party in Minnesota. And Humphrey was part of the anti-communist liberal faction, which won that battle. But I think Humphrey, out of that experience, was a soft touch for the idea that there was mass communist subversion in this country, and he was too soft a touch for the domino theory that you had to fight in Vietnam because this was part of a global effort of worldwide communism uh, to take over. And I can see plenty of reasons other than him trying to be Johnson's loyalist for him to support the war. And in fact... There was an amazing oral history of George McGovern's that I found in my research. And McGovern and Humphrey had been very close early in McGovern's career. Then, then they became arch opponents in 68 and 72. But they reconciled later on in the mid to 70s. And McGovern recalls going for a walk together with Humphrey in the D.C. suburb where they both lived. And Humphrey saying to him kind of unprompted, I know that people say I only supported the Vietnam War because of Lyndon, but that's not true. I believed in it. I know now that was the wrong decision, but I don't want you to think I would take a stand I didn't believe in just because of Lyndon. And that rang very true to me. And so it's tragic that Humphrey supported the war, just like it's tragic that Lyndon Johnson, out of concerns with how the Kennedys were going to look at him, is if he didn't finish off successfully this war that, frankly, JFK had begun. That's why it's tragic that he pursued it when we know from the recordings in your library that he had misgivings early, early on about it. So you could sort of be of two minds, as I think Humphrey was also, seeing the risks and the downsides, but also being able to persuade himself until 1968 that you had to try to stick with it. And that just did tremendous damage 
to his re reputation, just as it did to Lyndon Johnson's. Um, and in a different way, because I think liberals, I think foolishly, frankly, but liberals of the Kennedy and Adlai Stevenson sort were highly wary of Lyndon Johnson, skeptical, couldn't believe his good intentions and and bravery on civil rights, even as it was happening. And I think when he escalated in Vietnam, there was sort of a told you so attitude. And with Humphrey, precisely because he'd been such a shining hero within liberalism, there was this sense of you have in this almost personal way betrayed us. Mm. And that's even worse. You're a traitor <laughs> to us now. And I think a lot of the wrath against him and a lot of the the ridicule of him, the kind of glorying in insulting him, was a product of that sense of personal betrayal. Mm. Sam, looking at Hubert Humphrey's life as a whole, how, how, how should we ultimately remember him on, on balance? What do you see as the biggest part of his legacy? Yeah. Well, I, I think, as I said with Lyndon Johnson earlier, you have to hold both parts of his political saga in your hands at the same time. You, you can't give either of them a free pass on Vietnam. You know, millions of lives were lost here and there as a result. On the other hand, when you look at the totality of the political lives and you look at Humphrey, who really was active and out there on civil rights for 10 or 15 years before Lyndon Johnson was and then collaborated so importantly with him. And you have to say, doesn't that in the end, and also the Great Society and the Peace Corps and you know, with Humphrey, his attempt to pass full employment legislation at the very end of his life, you have to say, can't that outweigh or at least equal even a grievous mistake of Vietnam? And what I've really hoped to do in this book is definitely not write a hagiography of him and not make a case for a free pass for him on, on Vietnam, but to say there's a whole other part of this political life that we've either pay too little attention to or never learned about in the first place. And just as it's wholly deserved that we look at Lyndon Johnson in the fulsome 360-degree way we do now, Humphrey deserves no less. The book is Into the Bright Sunshine, Young Hubert Humphrey and the Fight for Civil Rights. And our guest has been Samuel Friedman. Sam, thanks so much for being with us. Thank you, Mark. And Mark is really an incredible honor to be on this podcast. Thank you. My thanks to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and as always to you for joining us. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Lawrence. See you next time.